sing. Uh, today we're coming to the last of my five uh, sermons of, of Be of Good Cheer. It is the message that the Lord Jesus spoke in the Bible. Uh, I think those are some of the most encouraging words that I find in all of Scripture. It's a little four-word phrase, Be of Good Cheer. And I tell you, I need that. All right? Other places, other translations other than the New King James translates that, Be of Good Courage. Uh, the, the word works both ways, and, and, and the way I visualize this and see this cheer happening is that when everything is falling apart in my life and nothing is going right, all of a sudden God steps in and God intervenes and God does what only God can do. And I recognize that and I know that. And you know what? It warms my heart. It gives me courage to know that God is with me. And that even though things are going bad in my life, God is still with me. And he's going to take care of things. And so it brings me courage, but it also makes my heart happy. <laughs> so be of good cheer. What a great phrase that Jesus spoke. And as we've studied that phrase, we've noticed that Jesus is the only one in the Bible who said it. He only said it five times on five different occasions. Remember the first time was in Acts, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. A, a man showed up at church one Sunday. He, I don't really think he was expecting much to happen. He was just coming more out of routine than anything or out of habit. Kind of reminds me of some people I know. Yeah? Just showing up, not really expecting much. But you know what? He got what he didn't even expect because Jesus was there that day. And this man was withered, not only in his hand, but withered in his heart. And Jesus called him front and center and said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus brought healing to this man's life, first in his heart when he forgave him of his sins, and secondly in his hand when he stretched his hand out and made the withered hand whole. Then in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus spoke the word a second time. It was to a lady who had been suffering with a hemorrhaging for 12 years. She snuck through the crowd and reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. He turned around and said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And even though she had been hemorrhaging or bleeding for 12 years, immediately the blood flow stopped and the lady was healed. You talk about having courage from that moment on. You talk about having a happy heart. You talk about being of good cheer. Well, she was. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus spoke the word a third time. This time it was to the 12 disciples. And even though most of them had been fishermen all of their lives, they had spent a night on the Sea of Galilee and the waves were white capping. And they were afraid. They thought they were going to lose their life. And all of a sudden, they saw in the darkness somebody walking on the water. They thought it was a ghost, but it was Jesus. And what did he say to his 12 men? Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. And I tell you, I need to hear that every once in a while, don't you? You don't have anything to be afraid of, nothing to worry about. In fact, be of good cheer. Then last week in John chapter 16, we read the fourth time Jesus spoke these words. It was again to his disciples in the upper room, just days before he would be crucified on the cross. Remember what he said in verse 33. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 
Guys, I can say a big amen to that. Because in this world we do have problems and trials and troubles and tribulation. But I know that my Jesus has overcome the world. Therefore, he can overcome the trouble I'm facing. Be of good cheer. And then today we come to Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the fifth time Jesus spoke these words. Here's what the verse says. But the following night the Lord stood by him. He's standing by the apostle Paul. And he said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified before me in Jerusalem, so must you also bear witness of me in Rome. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the passage that we're studying, open it before our eyes and speak it into our heart. And dear Lord, if there is anyone in this room today that is dealing with disappointment or discouragement or even depression, I pray that today they would be of good cheer, knowing that you're with them and that you have something for them to do. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I think many of you know the name Tony Dungy. Uh, he's a, a, an announcer now, but for years he was a professional head football coach. Uh, the last team he coached for was the Indianapolis Colts. Back on December 23rd in 2005, he suffered a terrible personal tragedy through the death of his 18-year-old son. And then the Colts, who had been unbeaten for most of the season, faltered in their final games and lost the chance to play in the Super Bowl. As the players came back to the locker room to clean out their lockers and prepare for the offseason, Dungy called them around for one last little pep talk. And he told them, guys, I want you to know there is a difference between disappointment and discouragement. We're all disappointed by some of the things that happen to us in life, he said. But we can't allow those disappointments to deteriorate into discouragement. And you certainly can't let discouragement further deteriorate into depression. I think that's pretty good advice for all of us, don't you? And you need to understand that the heroes of the Bible were not immune to that triple threat of disappointment, discouragement, and even depression. The Apostle Paul was as strong-willed as, many man, men, as, as any man in the Bible. He was determined. He was strong. He was a man's man, and yet in Acts chapter 23, we see him bewildered and disappointed. He had been thrown into prison, and things were going from bad to worse. It became increasingly clear to the Apostle Paul that he was in big trouble, and that his big dream of going to Rome and preaching the gospel in Rome was fading fast. This spiral began uh, just a couple of chapters before chapter 23. In fact, I go back to chapter 21. Hey, can I just talk a little Bible to you? Let, let me kind of bring you up to date on what was happening in Paul's life and see if you can't relate to this in one way or another. In chapter 21, he and his partners uh, came to the, uh, the area of Tyre. And there he was in Tyre for seven days. And the Bible says the people of Tyre, the disciples there, told Paul... 
through the Spirit, okay? So they weren't making this up. They were speaking in the Spirit of God. And they told him through the Spirit that he didn't need to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to You might say, well, why would they tell him that? Well, the people in Jerusalem hated Paul. The Jews there hated him. Why? Because he had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. And then him and his compadres went down to Caesarea. They went to the house of an evangelist named Philip. And while they were there, chapter 21, verse 10 tells us that a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Verse 11, it says, when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. And when the other disciples heard this prophecy by Agabus, they pled with Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Please don't go there. It's just, it's just going to mean something bad for you. Paul responded and answered to them, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. The next verse tells us that after they heard that, they said, All right, the Lord's will be done. You, you know what you're getting into. And uh, sure enough, he, he went to Jerusalem. And guess what? They were waiting on him. And they plotted to kill him. In fact, they attempted to kill him. They turned him over to the Romans who threw him in prison. And then we read in the next chapter, he was talking to the, uh, to the Jews. He was able to have an audience with them. And he preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He testified of the gospel of Christ. Get that. He testified to them of the good news of the gospel. And he told them the story of his conversion. And then he said... Jesus spoke to me and told me to go and preach to the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us as soon as the Jews heard that word, Gentile, that they just threw, they, they went wild. They said, kill this man. Why? Because they hated Gentiles. Now, isn't it strange that people who call themselves God's people, religious people, would hate other people? I mean, that's not supposed to be that way, guys. And I could probably preach a whole sermon just on that. Our attitude towards it. God wants all sinners to be saved. We need to love all people. And even though the Jews hated the Gentiles, Paul took the gospel to them. Well, in the next chapter, chapter 23, our, our key chapter for today, uh, they, he was brought before the Sanhedrin. Again, it was, it was a riot. Uh, they hated Paul. They, in fact, the Romans were so afraid that they thought that the Jews were going to rip Paul apart. They were pulling on him and yanking on him. They thought that the Jews were going to rip his limbs off. <laughs> Paul, Paul was in deep water, man. It wasn't good for him. Things were bad. And so what did the Romans do? They threw him in prison. And that's when we come to our key verse. He's in prison. Hmm. Disappointment. Settling into discouragement, deteriorating into depression. You know, I, I've got to just stop and ask, have you ever been there? Hmm? Sure you have. This is not at all what Paul had expected. All of his plans and dreams were flushing down the drain. 
Paul's ambitions and dreams were expansive, but they suddenly crashed into the side of a mountain. I think this man of God was somewhat stunned and also shaken. But that's when Jesus shows up. You know, Jesus always shows up at the right time, doesn't he? Paul's world literally was falling apart. People wanted him dead. He didn't know if he was going to live through the night. He is in a Roman dungeon, a Roman prison, and all of a sudden, Jesus, his Lord and Savior, stepped down from the heavenly throne into the atmospherics of planet Earth, and he stood right beside Paul in that Roman dungeon. And he spoke to him. Our key verse, verse 11, again. But the following night the Lord stood by Paul and said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, which he had just done. Remember that? I made a big deal about it. He had testified the good news of the gospel. They rejected him. He still preached. Jesus said, Just as you have preached of me in Jerusalem, you must also take the good news all the way to Rome. Now, you know the Bible doesn't waste words. It says what it means. It means what it says. This week, as I mulled this verse over, I was struck by a little phrase that just stood out to me. Now, verse 11 could have said, but the following night the Lord said, be of good cheer. It could have said that, and we would have got the meaning from it, but, but that's not what it said. There's a little added phrase in verse 11. It says, the following night the Lord stood by him. And I think the Bible is making a big deal that the Lord Jesus was actually standing by Paul. The Bible wants us to know that, that in prison, Jesus stood by Paul. And he said to him, be of good cheer. The Greek word means to stand beside someone or to stand near them. Now, that's interesting to me because of another passage in the Bible that tells us something of what happened to Paul years later. The apostle Paul was in prison again. <laughs> uh, he just kept getting thrown into prison. Always for preaching the Word of God. We find that strange, don't we? That a preacher could be thrown into prison. A Christian could be thrown into prison just because of their testimony. It's not far-fetched. We're not too far from that right now, guys. There he is in prison again facing his final battle. He was on trial for his life before the Roman Caesar. He was about to be condemned to execution. And look what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me. That's, that's a crying shame, isn't it? All his friends abandoned him. Nobody stood with him. And he pleaded with God, may it not be charged against them. But here's what I want you to see, verse 17. Even though nobody else stood with him, verse 17 says, but the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me. Nobody else would stand with Paul. But Jesus stood with him. Jesus stood with him. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The Lord stood with him and said to him, be of good cheer. Paul remembered that years later. Nobody else would stand with me. 
but Jesus stood with me. Guys, when there is no other comfort, when there is no other support, when there is no other consolation or comforter in life, we have the omnipresent nearness of the Lord himself. Right there in our own room or in our own closet or in our own prison cell or in our own hospital room or wherever we may be. He is as near and as present as any other person possibly could be. <laughs> Man, the Lord's with us. The Lord's with us. Now, in reading Christian and missionary biographies, I find that this is the rule more than the exception. For example, let me tell you a story about a missionary by the name of Rosalind Goforth. Her and her husband served in China. She told of a time when she and her family were in extreme danger during the Boxer Rebellion. They were literally surrounded by a blood, bloodthirsty mob. And, and Rosalind said that she was seized with this overwhelming fear, not of being killed, but of being tortured, which was a reality in that particular scenario. Her husband took out of his pocket a little book that he had written several Bible verses in. And here was the first verse he read. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are his everlasting arms. He went on to read several other verses. And later, this is what Rosalind wrote. She said, the effect of those words at such a time was remarkable. All of us realized that God was speaking to us. Never was there a message more directly given to a mortal man from God than that message that was given to us. From almost the first verse, my whole soul seemed flooded with a great peace. All trace of panic vanished, and I felt God's presence with us, just as if he were standing in that room. Awesome. Now, guys, I mean, this, this isn't just for missionaries in dangerous situations like the Apostle Paul, Rosalind Goforth, or Callie Harmon, who I have seen recent pictures of petting a cheetah and jumping out of an airplane. She did not call her dad first, I can tell you that, all right? The constantly abiding presence of the Lord Jesus is a blessing that is given to every child of God. And one of the reasons, I believe, we battle disappointment, discouragement, and depression is because we don't tap into that reality. We don't appreciate it. We don't appropriate it. We don't actualize this truth in our own souls and in our own situations. So the question is, how do we cultivate a sense of the reality of the presence of Jesus in our everyday life? How can we actualize this for ourselves? Well, let me offer very quickly a threefold plan. And I think you can remember it with just three words. Discover, realize, and pray. First, you need to discover in the Bible, that Jesus is with you. 
You need to recognize in the Bible, here's a theological word, the omnipresence of God. The word omnipresence means that God is everywhere present at the same time. Now, we can't be that way. Half the times I don't even recognize that I'm present where I actually am, all right? But God is present everywhere at the same time. Therefore, just as I know Jesus is right here with me, he's also in Corning with Angie this morning. And he's also in Cape Town, South Africa with Cali. He's everywhere. God is everywhere. And the Bible talks about that. It talks about his literal presence everywhere. He is the God of this universe. And what I'm suggesting is that you search the Bible and find these verses and read them and get it into your mind and heart that God is everywhere. I'm going to give you a head start. We're going to, I'm going to help you in this Bible study, all right? I'm going to give you four different categories of the nearness verses that talk about the nearness of God and some verses that go along with it. First of all, you can study these omnipresent verses having to do with God's measureless immensity in the universe. For example, 1 Kings 8.27 says that the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. Dude, man, that means he's everywhere. The heavens and the heaven of heavens can't contain. And then you try to put God in a little box. <laughs> it don't work, man, because he's everywhere. Jeremiah 23 avows that he fills heaven and earth. Isaiah 66, 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. That's big. <laughs> I like the way the psalmist put it in Psalms 139 in personal terms when he prayed, Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You're not getting very excited, but let me tell you, God's everywhere. God is everywhere. And then you can discover the presence verses these are scripture references that use the word present or presence to describe God's nearness. I'll just throw a couple of them out to you. Psalms 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That means when you get in trouble, God's right there with you. He is a present help. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's right there with you. And times of refreshing are going to come out of him. So get as close to him as you can. And then there are the with us verses, like these. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. We love Psalms 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Psalms 46, 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there are tons 
more of these with us verses in the Bible. And then there's a whole set of nearness verses. Like Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And he saves those who have a contrite spirit. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. And then I love James 4, 8. Draw near to God. And guess what? God will draw near to you. Let me just say this to you. God is in this room. God is here. He's always with you. In fact, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. So my first suggestion to you is that you need to investigate this subject in the Bible and find those scriptures which speak to you powerfully about the nearness of God. You've got to understand, in your mind, you need to have a mental assurance that you know what? No matter what I'm going through, no matter where I am in life, God is with me. How do I know it? Because the Bible says so. And then secondly, you need to realize that. You need to realize that. You, you, need to actual, you need to conceptualize that. As a believer, we need to realize that God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. The Lord is always near us. We, we not, not only just need to know it in our minds, we have to realize it in our hearts. Okay? There is more to just knowing. There's also living. Let me try to show you how this works. Whenever I go somewhere and preach, whether it's right here at Kavanaugh or whether it's off in Timbuktu, almost every time when I step up and walk across a platform going to the pulpit, I recognize and I understand that Jesus is right there with me. He's walking beside me. Dude, let me tell you, I make sure of it because I can't do this by myself. When I try to preach by myself, it is, it's horrible. I fall on my face. So I have spent plenty of time praying beforehand. And right before I come up to preach, I always pray. Say, Lord, anoint me with your Holy Spirit. Please, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, give me a fresh anointing. Be with me and, and, and work through my mind and free my tongue. And so when I get up and walk across the platform to the pulpit, I can sense God's presence with me. And there have been multiple occasions when I have heard him saying to me, Will, don't worry about it. I'll do the preaching today. All you have to do is stand there and open your mouth at the right time. And I've got it covered. Sometimes I get calls late in the night. I got one just a couple of weeks ago. Tragedy has occurred. Someone's at the hospital. They're asking for the preacher to come. This is just reality, okay? I'm driving my truck, my GMC truck down 540 going to Mercy or going up to Sparks on Zero Street. And I already know what I'm going to face when I get to the hospital, and it's not good. And I'm thinking, what, 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 what can I say? And then I start praying, Lord, I, I need your help. I need, I need to know what to say to these people. I need, I need some guidance, God. They're hurting. They're grieving. They're looking for answers. And God, I don't have them. And again, let me say, this is real. This is reality. It is as if 
Jesus is sitting in the passenger seat of my black GMC truck riding down the road with me. And he says to me, it's okay, Will. I've got this. All you need to do is be there. And I'll do the talking through you. And as we get to the hospital and walk across the parking lot, I know he's with me. And as we walk down the hallway to that particular room, I know he's there. And as I open the door and step into the room, it's not just that family and me. Jesus is there too. It's a reality. Sometimes when I lay down at night, I can sense the Lord Jesus sitting on my bedside, waiting to tuck me in and listen to my prayers just like my mom and dad used to do when I was a kid. Church, here's what I want you to know. These are not figments of my imagination. These are realities of my theology. This is what I believe about God. God is present. Even though He is invisible, He is still there. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to be honored and glorified forever and ever. God is in this place. God is with us. And we need to know that. There is no reason we shouldn't conceptualize Him all the time. You, you don't just need these verses in your head. You need the reality of this in your heart. Knowing that Jesus is with you. You know, I, I really think if, if we thought of that more, if, if we recognized it, that Jesus is with me all the time, it would keep us out of a whole lot of trouble. And it would probably keep us far from sin. And what a comfort in times of distress to know that Jesus is with me. Now there's one thing more, I think more than any other thing that enables us to do this. And, and this is the sense of the Lord's presence that I find through prayer. Deuteronomy 4.7 says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. <laughs> wow. And he is. Andrew Murray once defined prayer in this way. The chief purpose of prayer is recognizing the presence of the Holy Spirit through the Heavenly Father. So let me show you two other verses that I think will help us see the practicality of this. Psalm 95 verse 2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And then Psalm 100 verse 2. Come before his presence with singing. In other words, church, one of the ways to practice the presence of the Lord is to sing praises to his name and to be thankful all the day long. Now, what if... What, what if we went through the day just singing praises to his name? I mean, even when we're a room, in a room full of other people, you can, you can pray in your head. 
But when you're by yourself, or, or man, who cares? Even when you're with other people. What if you just start singing praises to the Lord? Turning your focus off of the world and its problems to a God who has the whole world in his hands. Or, or what about this? What, what if you went through the whole day just whispering or saying out loud, Thank you, Lord. Lord, I, I want to thank you for all the blessings in life. Not just the big things. Thank you for the little things. When you're putting on your shoes, say, Lord, thank you for these shoes. Man, appreciate them. Thank you for the clothes that I get to wear. Thank you for that black truck. I've, I've mentioned my black truck two or three times. I love my GMC black pickup truck. It's cool. But you know what? It's a gift from God. Lord, thank you for my truck. Thank you, thank you, for, the, thank you the, for the gas that's in the truck. When, when we were singing this morning, I just looked up on this stage and I said, Lord, there sure is a bunch of stuff up there. Thank you for it. And, and Lord, thank you for the people who are using that stuff to bring praise, honor, and glory to your name. Lord, thank you for the job I have. What if you went through the day just, just thanking the Lord for... This little thing or that little thing. What if you went through your day muttering and breathing out a word of thanksgiving here and there to the Lord for the little blessings that come your way every day? Just the constant attitude of thanksgiving. Just the constant practice of thanking God out loud and specifically for the countless little blessings that you take for granted. After all, the Bible says that He daily loads us with benefits. Aren't you thankful for that? That he gives us those things we just take for granted. Wow, thank you, Lord. Guys, if we were more expressive with our thanksgiving, I think we would recognize his presence more frequently. Maybe this is what the Bible means when it says we are to pray without ceasing. Just giving thanks. Oh, there he was. It was late at night. People wanted him dead. Everybody had abandoned him. He was in a Roman dungeon, gloom and doom all around. He was disappointed, discouraged, and probably depressed. But all of a sudden, Out of nowhere, guess who's standing beside him? <laughs> Jesus. And he said, be of good cheer, Paul. I'm not done with you yet. <laughs> I got something else I want you to do for me. So get out of the depression and the discouragement and the despair. Put on that cheerful face. Because I'm about to use you like you've never been used before. The best is yet to come. So you know what? God's got a word for you this morning. Those of you who are a little disappointed or discouraged or outright depressed, he's with you. Right here, he's with you.
and he's whispering in your ear, take courage, friend, be of good cheer. I'm not done with you. There's something else I need you to do. You're going to be my witness. So let's go.